You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. I'm going to tell you the story of the journey down the road not taken. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Searching your role? Yes. It takes place in the near future. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. You're gonna have to wear a bulletproof vest. Let's talk about your phone. What's it really about? so scared, Mr. Santeros. The future is just like you imagine. Ah! Someone must be hiding it. It's like the nervous breakdown of the century. Nothing that a killer, a porn star, and a tattoo parlor can't handle. <laughs> it is time for a surgical strike. violence in the world if everyone just got a little more cardio. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Really, the big question is, who are you going to trust, a Nobel Prize-winning scientist or a two-bit porn star? Also back in the booth is Mr. David Kittredge. This is the way the world ends. On this episode, we are looking at Richard Kelly's Southland Tales, released in 2006 and set in 2008, the distant year of 2008. The film stars Dwayne The Rock Johnson as Boxer Santaros and Jericho Kane. 
He's an actor with amnesia who becomes entangled with Sarah Michelle Gellar as Krista Now, a part-time prophet, full-time porn star. On the outskirts of the story is Sean William Scott as Roland and Ronald Tavener. One's a cop and the other one's playing the role of a cop or something. I'm going to say that we'll spoil the film, but I'm not sure if we really can. There's a lot of film to spoil. There's a lot of film. You can spoil like part of it. And then just be okay for the rest, really. It's, it's, there's not a lot. It's like spoiling, like, you know, a paella. It's like, which part do you spoil? It's like, there's scallops, there's rice, and there are about 37 other things. Rob, when was the first time you saw Southland Tales and what did you think? Well, you put the list out and you're like, hey guys, um, I'm going to be doing some shows next year. Take a look at the list and see which ones you want to come in on. And this was one where I go, I, I had heard things. Um, but I had not seen it and I had seen Donnie Darko and we can talk a little bit about that later, but, uh, I was like, I'll sign up for that considering that I knew that there was some, uh, tension between the release cut and the, what they showed a can. And there's a lot of films that I love, such as apocalypse now that had a can version and then had a release version. So I'm like, okay, I'll sign up and watch Southland tales. And uh, I got to say, it is packed to the gills with ideas. And your little synopsis there up the top, Mike, is only 15% of <laughs> what's going on in this film. As I was explaining to my wife before we started, I go, it's an action film. It's a musical. It's a social satire. It's a political satire. It is. There's so many things in this. There's really something for everyone. And at times, I wonder if there's something for anyone. Because there's moments where I'm like, as a scene, this works, but I don't know if it holds together. Who needs cohesion, really? I mean, come on. That's a little unfair. I was very, very excited to see this film because I had heard – I was a big fan of Donnie Darko. I remember seeing In Manhattan in its release in October right after September 11th. Um, it was not the first movie I went to see after September 11th. That was Glitter. And that was an experience to see that with traumatized New Yorkers right after September 11th. That was like, I will never hate that movie or Mariah. Well, I'm gay, so they would take away my card. There was such a beautiful sense of coming together laughing at glitter. I went to see Donnie Darko, very different vibe, of course. But I came out of that saying, like, I think I saw one of the best movies of the year. And no one had heard of it. I mean, they did some TV and they did some – but nobody wanted to see – I mean, it was in October of 2001. Like, you know, you could still smell – the remnants of the World Trade Center in Manhattan when I lived there at that time. So um, when I heard that he was doing this ambitious, sprawling, end-of-the-world saga that was going to go to Cannes, I was like, yes to all of that. Because the one thing that I love about cinema and, and movies in general is when a director goes way, 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 way far out on that limb. On that, on that limb of ambition. So then I read the Variety Review, the infamous Variety Review, which came out right after it premiered at Cannes, which basically said it was an unmitigated disaster. It was this sprawling two, almost three hour monstrosity of incoherence and craziness. At which point I was like, I must see this movie immediately. Like I need to see it now. Like put it in my veins. I want to see it. Eventually in 2007, it came out and Opening day, or I think actually the, the, the day after, I think it was a Saturday matinee. My boyfriend at the time and I and a couple of friends went to see Southland Tales at the Arc Light in Hollywood. 
maybe a quarter, one-fifth full. It was a matinee. It was a Saturday matinee. So that's not like, you know. Upon leaving that movie, my boyfriend and my two friends looked at me, daggers in their eyes, like, what the fuck did you just bring us into? Like, why? And, and I was like, that was so fucking cool. How can you, how can you watch this movie, this sprawling, monstrous, crazy movie and not be like, oh my God, I just actually experienced something. This is actually something. I was in the minority on that one. It was me and Manola Dargis of the New York Times, I think. That was about it for, for positive takes on the Southland Tales in 2007. So when I heard that the can cut was coming finally, and it was kind of making the rounds, and it went to LACMA out here in L.A. I was living out here in L.A. at the time. And I took my current boyfriend, uh, who had never seen any version of it, and another friend of mine who actually worked for Outfest, the film festival, and was a film nerd, like a film snob like me and, and like us, I guess. Went to see that. My current boyfriend was very nice afterwards and was just like, that was really interesting. I'm glad I saw it, which is, you know, translation for that is, wow, I didn't like that. But, you know, okay, it was something. It wasn't worthless. And my outfest friend, I daggers in the eyes, wanted to kill me and still has not forgiven me, I don't think. I actually think that this movie, I, I would say it's misunderstood, but I think it just goes back to what do you want out of a movie? What do you want out of cinema? I mean, we all kind of talk about movies like they're this thing that everybody can do or see or make, but it's like, at heart, this is an art form. And I know it sounds really stupid and pretentious to say that, but it's no, the cinema is an art form. This is actually a work of art. And as a work of art, you have to kind of look at it and be like, what was intended? What did I feel? How did it come off? What worked? What didn't? And there are things in this film that don't work. But there is so much in this film that actually does work and is interesting and visionary that I don't see how anybody who truly loves cinema can dismiss this movie or, or a movie like it. And there are, there, are, there's a list and Mike knows there's a list. I have a list of movies that like, why, if you love cinema, how could you dismiss? I was going to go on the list, but that's a tangent. We can talk about that later. But yeah, that was my first, my first time was like in release 2007. And then my first time in the can cut was in 2019. Uh, when it played at LACMA and I just watched the can cut again yesterday to, to prep for this. And it's still as sprawling and crazy and as much of a trip as I remember it. It's, it's really a movie for people who want something more out of their movie than just escapism. I'm not going to try to talk you into hating this movie, but you're not going to talk me into loving this movie. I am not uh, an advocate. I am a shining light of cinema that will bring us all into appreciation. I'm an appreciation person. I'm like the Walmart guy at the front, except more cinema and glowy, I guess. I don't know. This movie just made me mad the first time I saw it. And it made me mad even before I saw it, because I had read about the three graphic novels that lead into this movie. And I just thought that was the most, I can't say ballsy because that implies that i admired the move i just thought it was a horrific thing to make you do homework before you go see a movie i hate words <sighs> yeah <laughs> words suck <laughs> if i wanted to read i'd go to school <laughs> basically seeing southland tales is if they took you and dropped you into the second half of the two towers and just said, good luck. Hope you understand this. We're not going to tell you what this ring does. We're not going to tell you 
why these people are on the way to Mordor. We're not going to tell you who these horsemen are. We're not going to tell you what orcs are. Good luck. Try to figure it out. Thank you for coming. I'll see you in hell. When I finally sat down and watched this movie years ago, I appreciate what it's trying to do, but I just think it is such a mess. And it feels very much like Zardoz in that whole idea of there are too many ideas in this movie. Like, you could take so many different parts of this and make a movie unto itself from it. And otherwise, there's just way too much stuff. And there's too much stuff that just is never explained, even in the comic books. I went back and read the comic books, and I'm just like, okay, I have a much clearer idea now of what's going on. But then I'm watching the movie again, and I'm watching it with the audio commentary. And Richard Kelly's like, oh, well, yeah, he just shot him with a blue thing of liquid karma, and blue does this. And later on, you'll see green. And I'm like, no, I've never noticed that the colors changed. And if I did, who's who makes up these rules? And wh- how am I supposed to know that blue does this and green does that and red does this? It's like all the different kryptonites from Superman. Do I have to keep all this stuff <laughs> clear in my head? But just a counter, Mike. You're forgetting one very important point when you when you compare it to Zardoz, and that is Zardoz is genius. It is genius. It's genius. It is a genius movie. Honestly, it should have been Watchmen budget, Watchmen length. Really, like I mean, I mean the HBO series, not the not the movies. This movie, this was a sprawling concept that he. If you're gonna fault him for anything, fault him for this. He tried to shoehorn this what should have been like a ten or twelve hour epic into a couple hours, like two and a half hours. I mean, that's really what the issue is here. I don't have a problem with that, all the ideas. I think all the ideas are kind of crazy and they, and they do hang together. I mean, there is a consistency to the crazy ideas. Like there, it's not like one idea is from one movie and one idea is from another movie. They all feel like they're the same world. It's just that we only have a two and a half hour movie and you're telling basically the accumulation of a 10 hour story in it. And there's, Things that happen in the movie that I don't realize are happening. Like, there are moments when Dwayne Johnson is playing Boxer Santeros, and then there are moments where he will shift and become Jericho Kane, but he's he's the same person. It's just there's a shift in his personality that, unless you actually have the audio commentary on, you're like, oh, I never realized that during the middle of this scene, he suddenly becomes Jericho Kane, and then he goes back to Boxer Santeros. And it's just like, wow. I've always felt that Richard Kelly gets in his own way too much. It's like, I don't know how people stand on the Donnie Darko theatrical cut versus the director's cut. But I've always found that the theatrical cut was better because it kind of cut out some of the horseshit that he gets in. And it feels like this movie started out – well, and it literally did start off as one thing and then it started to change. Like once September 11th happened, it changed from this light – comedy into something much darker and then i'm not sure when the graphic novels came out versus when the movie was being shot but it feels like there are even more ideas in the movie because he was making up things as he went along like in the graphic novels there are no different colored versions of liquid karma in the movie there is so it's it's interesting and i'm just using that as an example because liquid karma is so many different things it's an energy source. It's a drug. It's this. It's that. It's a dessert topping. It's a floor wax. I'm telling it's you. It's a dessert topping, you cow. Hey, 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 hey. Calm down, you two. New shimmers of floor wax and a dessert topping. 
there's just so much happening that it's a little overwhelming for me. This is probably the film that I've taken more notes than any other movie that I've been on the show with you. I have a notebook that I keep, and I and I took notes, and I took notes on both of them. I took notes on um, the release cut and the can cut, and I think I've got about thirty pages worth of notes. Jesus! And the, so I'm not I'm not going to get into every single thing here. If if there's people that want to listen to this show and they want to talk to me about a certain aspect, maybe I can do it by email. They're listening to get into these things, Rob. Give the people what they want. Start on page They're, one look, look, and look, go. Somebody, somebody out there saw the podcast title, clicked on it, and were like, yes, do that to me one more time. Well, there's a couple of things here where I, I don't know if you want to break them into the two different cuts and talk about one versus the other, or do you want to talk about them together? You know, kind of how, how do you want to do it, Mike? Because there's aspects of both that I really like. For example, one of the things that I really like about the release cut that isn't in the can cut, and I know exactly why it's in the release cut from a storytelling aspect, is all the graphics post the open prologue of the nuclear explosion in Texas. So Setting it up. Yeah. So there's this whole cable news graphic slash internet kind of thing where there's you know, scrolls and imagery. And, and it basically says, you know, this is the world you're in now. In the can cut, you come to understand you're in that world, but you don't have an idea of the full totality of it in the exact same way that he's able to do with those graphics in 90 seconds or so at the beginning of, of the release edit. So for me, that was great. I really uh, understood that. But then there's aspects between the can cut and the release cut that things get shifted or moved out and i feel we really lose a lot in terms of where this kind of plot's going there's things that i really like in it and i know exactly the satire targets that he's really trying to hit here he's trying to get us to look at the national security state the patriot act post-september 11th america and then also iraq and afghanistan he's he's really trying to to get us into that headspace he's also at the same time trying to get us into a headspace to understand someone like for me krista now represents either jenna jameson or paris hilton or a combination of the two because if you look back at that time period in pop culture there was a time for i don't know maybe about a year or so where Jenna Jameson, obviously a porn actress, was on TV. She was writing books. She was all over the place. And then there was this whole thing with Paris Hilton where she was just constantly branding herself. There was like a fragrance and there was a TV show and there was all of these things with her. So I really think that he's kind of making fun of that whole concept of celebrity culture. He's really angry and upset about the Patriot Act and all that, which, hey, I'll raise my hand. Back in 2001, when that thing was passed, I go, this is this is bad news. This sort of total surveillance concept that we're putting ourselves in, this is, this is not going to be that good. So there's a lot of things in there that I really think he's he's really trying to hit the targets. And I've had people online talk about, look at it in the way of like how Kubrick did Strangelove, in that Strangelove is a satire, it's blown out of proportion. But Kubrick had a very narrow funnel for where he was pushing. And the, the, the problem with that I have with Southland Tales is it's so sprawling. There's so much stuff in here. There's so much interconnection that I, I feel it pulls the teeth out that he really could have really taken a bite out of the post-9-11 um, America and really 
you know, gave us something really heavy. And in, in a way, I mean, like, like as I was watching this, Mike, I, I was thinking of other movies that we had done. And I can't remember the name of it. Uh, it was the one about, it was the late 60s film about the guy who dresses up like kind of Captain America. Oh, Mr. Freedom. Yeah, Mr. Freedom. It kind of reminds me of Mr. Freedom. It kind of reminds me of Brand X. It kind of reminds me of Bob Downey, who anyone who listens to this show, I probably talk about Bob Downey as much as I talk about Buñuel. It's like Putney Swope. It's in that kind of attitude. As a matter of fact, that car ad reminded me of a Putney Swope <laughs> type car ad, you know, that you would see. There's all of these things in there. There's like, I'm not the world's biggest Dune fan, but I almost got the feeling that Wallace Shawn was sort of a character out of Dune. He seemed like Baron, you know, the Baron. There's all of these things in there. And I'm just like, God, it's like, I really want you to focus and just take the knife and just jam it right into the fucking heart of that idea and just kill it. And it's like, well, I'm, I'm over here now. And I'm like, ah, I'm like, come on, stab the fucking thing already is kind of how I feel at times. This week, John McCain went on the offensive against Barack Obama, claiming that he's too famous to be president. He's the biggest celebrity in the world. Paris Hilton took offense to her image being used in McCain's celebrity ad and responded by throwing her own overpriced hat into the ring. So thanks for the endorsement, white-haired dude. And I want America to know that I'm, like, totally ready to lead. And I think around that time, as in... 2008 when Kelly was recording the audio commentary, not 2006. So it was almost a little prescient as far as the Kristinau Frost connection and the Paris Hilton uh, McCain connection. Because there, one reason why it's set in 2008 is because of a big political election. And it's funny because as he's recording the audio commentary, he's like, we're on the verge of a big political election. This was right before Barack Obama got voted president. If you want to believe that someone from Kenya can be voted president of the United States, of course. I got Marjorie Taylor Greene on the other line. She wants a word. I don't disagree with anything that you're saying, Rob, in the sense that I feel that it is overstuffed. And as much as a movie can be overstuffed, it's overstuffed. I, I guess maybe it's something in my personality where I will forgive a movie for having too many ideas that are too – and they aren't random ideas, though. This isn't like they just – like he just threw this – this is obviously the product of obsession. And the best art is a product of obsession. This is clearly the product of obsession. With artists like that, with artists like Richard Kelly, I would defend and speak highly of both Donnie Darko – and the box. The box is a little bit of a harder sell because there are a lot of people who don't like it. And it's one of the very few movies that got an F cinema score. That's a very interesting, by the way, side note. The, the movies that got an F cinema score, there should be its own series because they're all weirdly fascinating. They're not generally incompetent movies. They're just really, really confrontational, button pushing, demanding movies, as well as his script for Tony Scott's, for what I think Tony Scott's masterpiece, Domino which is the most Tony Scott of all of Tony Scott's movies. Like, you know, you can take The Hunger, you can take Top Gun, you can take all of his other movies. Like, no, the most Tony Scott movie is Domino, and Richard Kelly is the credited screenwriter. I know there were others, but mo it was mostly Richard Kelly. So this guy, he obviously views cinema through an obsessive lens. He, and he views storytelling as a sprawling, demanding exercise in subverting expectations which is my favorite kind of artist. Southland Tales, for as overstuffed as it is, 
you, if you are watching this for the first time, will not be able to predict what happens in this movie. Now, they'd say the world's going to end. So you pretty much know by the end of the movie, the world kind of sort of in a way ends. So that's not really a spoiler. Literally, it's the, the opening of the movie. But you will not, <laughs> in any conceivable way, know what's going to happen even in the next scene, even in the next line. You are constantly on the seat of the edge of your seat because it's like, what's going to happen? Oh, is Cherry O'Terry going to like run someone over with a car or scream like, you know, and try to shoot someone or try to pay Christopher Lambert with a personal check? It's like, you don't know what's going to happen. And characters come and go or, or get killed or don't get killed or make escapes or don't make escapes. And yet at the end of it, when I find myself thinking about this film and kind of pondering it, it it does kind of hold together in a weird, crazy, sprawling, maniacal way. Somewhat like the the title art, which is basically Southland Tales in the title is shown over an electoral map, which is like a map of the United States, except the ones with more electoral votes are like more bulbous. It's one of, I forget what those maps are called. Uh, there's a word for them, but I'm not intelligent enough this morning to remember what that word is. Th- that's kind of emblematic of the movie. It's this bulbous, misshapen, crazy mass that kind of is unique, doesn't look like anything, but kind of looks like something. I know this is probably coming through in my voice and what I'm saying, but I can't express my admiration for this film enough. Yes, it doesn't work. I mean, Richard Kelly, I think, would probably agree that it doesn't work um, entirely. But there's enough of it that does. And there's enough ideas and stuff thrown in there that that's why that I think it's kind of an amazing film. And Manola Darkus thought it was kind of an amazing film. I think she put it on her top 10 of 2007, which, you know, probably got her thrown in critic jail for a while. But it's like, I, I mean, thank God for that. Thank God for her. Thank God for movies like this. It's the old quote I used to use, Mike, when I was on the show that I remember when I was in Canada 99 and Trent Haga, who I was hanging out with when I was with the Troma crew, he went to go see this Argento film and someone asked him how, how it was. And he goes, a bad Dario Argento film is better than a good Michael Bay film any day. And I will agree with you that I am totally on board with someone who's willing to sprawl, who's willing to take those chances as an artist, to take those risks. Absolutely. Absolutely love that. The thing that I, and maybe this is just my own expectation, is that I really feel like he wanted to make solid points. He wanted to make a point about the war on terror, and he wanted to make a point about Iraq and Afghanistan and our political climate and our, and in the way in which we, we handle celebrity in this culture that we live in and consumerism and all of those things. It just feels like he, he just kept getting sidetracked. Like he really could have made some, hard points and he really could have, like I said, he could have just take the knife out and just stab this thing right in the heart. Instead, I just sort of feel like we get little flesh wounds on some of these things. But the sidetrack kind of is the point of this film and, and films like this. This film isn't about a direct line. And I don't even know if it's about like making huge points. About, I mean, what are you going to say about the police state or the Patriot Act? It's like, what, what are you going to say that hasn't been said? What are you going to say about our involvement in the Middle East that couldn't possibly be said in a pop movie that's two and a half hours long starring The Rock? Yeah, I mean, he did want to make points. I think that the fact that they're in here kind of indicates that. But at the same time, I don't know. I mean, I think that the pleasure of this movie, and again, it goes back to what you want out of a movie, is all about the unpredictability, the sprawling nature, the the, the lunatic, crazy, constant barrage of ideas, many of which work and some of which don't. Generally speaking, when I try to get someone to watch this movie, I just I just list the cast. 
literally, I'm like, I'm just like, oh yeah, it's by the writer director of uh, Donnie Darko, and it cost like, you know, what was it, like twenty million dollars or something crazy? It was like, it was a lot of money, uh, at least compared to Donnie Darko. By the way, for them to bring this movie in for twenty million dollars, oh my fucking god. I want to meet your line producer. That I mean, this movie should have cost like 80 or 90 million dollars. Like, you know, but here's the cast. I'm just like, you know, just th- tell me if it's about the end of the world. It takes place in Venice Beach. It stars The Rock, Sarah Michelle Gellar, John Lovitz, Amy Poehler, Nora Dunn, Cherry O'Terry, Sean uh, William Scott, uh, Lou Pucci, Christopher Lambert, John Larroquette, Mandy Moore, Kevin Smith. Who am I forgetting? Bay Ling, Wallace Shawn. Uh, Rebecca Del Rio, oh, oh, Zelda Rubenstein, um, Wallace Shawn, Curtis Armstrong. I'm not reading this. This is literally off the top of my head. I don't even remember all of them. You're actually missing the protagonist of the film. And that's a weird thing that I'm saying. Who, The Rock? No, the protagonist of this film is Justin oh, Timberlake. Oh, Justin JT? Well, he's the narrator. He's not really the protagonist. No, he's supposed to be the protagonist. <laughs> this is his story. I, I, you know, he's... But it, but it's like, no, it's like you watch Stalag, you know Stalag 17. That's like, there's a narrator in that talking about William Holden, like, you know, we were all on Stalag 17 and there was a, there was a dude informing to the Germans. We didn't know who it was. That's not the protagonist. The protagonist of this movie is, is either Boxer Santeros, played by The Rock, or Sean William Scott, who plays, uh, the Taverner brothers. Who are uh, brothers. Quote, unquote. Right. And, and it's about, it's kind of like a dual Christ story. I mean, thank God we have a narrator because Lord knows how on earth could we navigate this otherwise. I say this to people that, with the cast list and they're just like, oh my God, they were all in like a movie together. <laughs> it's like, yeah. yes. And it's crazy. And it's, and whatever you say about this movie and, and how irritated that it can make many people who want something more, I guess, straightforward and coherent. It's not boring. I'm no, I am not bored during this movie for a moment. Oh, Mandy Moore. I forgot about Mandy Moore. She's very funny. I like her a lot. Miranda Richardson is one of them. Miranda. Oh, my God. She's so good. Miranda Richardson as like the the most horrible right wing bitch ever. I mean, the cast on this thing, as I was watching it, I go, wow, all these SNL people and not the typical SNL people that you would expect. And some who I love from when I was a kid, like Nora Dunn. I'm just like, wow, like I always loved her. She's a treasure. She's a treasure. And then being a huge Night Court fan, I mean, anytime I get to see John Larroquette, I'm usually like, wow, like he does a great job in here. He steals every scene that he, every single scene that he's in, I think is hilarious. Like there's that, there's that scene in the middle, literally in the middle where, where Kristen now is being brought to the bad guys and everyone's like doing that. Like, but you said this, but you said this like moment, like the end of a murder mystery or something. You should be very careful about pointing fingers, Madeline. Because I happen to know that you are pregnant with Brad's baby! And I have the blood tests to prove it. So from the casting aspect, I'm, I'm just amazed by it. Like you were saying, from production aspect, too. You know, if, if I had one problem with the casting, and, and I don't know if, if, if you got this or not, if he's either making fun of this or he's using that stereotype in some way, is that Bai Ling basically plays the dragon lady. And it is such a stereotypical Asian woman character that I'm just, I'm just sort of like, oh my God, dude. Like, like I understand the point that you're trying to make with Wallace Shawn. Like I said, Wallace Shawn kind of reminds me of, and, and, and granted, I've only seen the, the David Lynch version of 
Dune, but it kind of reminded me of like the Baron from Dune. And then I go, and he's with the Dragon Lady, and they kind of have this weird kind of half business relationship, half sexual relationship, and she is just. I mean, she's amazing in the role that she has for what she has to do, but it just feels kind of stereotypical. That one is stereotypical, while at the same time, he has a, a black character who plays the joke of the stereotypical black man for a scene that's supposed to be staged. So he's even willing to, like, play off stereotype and make a joke about stereotype, while at the same time, he's got a character that's a stereotype. So I was a little confused. I've always been very confused about the Lou Taylor Pucci character, Martin Kefauver, because he's supposed to be kind of a key to a lot of things. And every time I see him, he reminds me of the character from Hedwig and the Angry Inch, the woman who is in drag as a man. He looks like he's in drag with this like weird do-rag and this scraggly beard that he has. I'm just like waiting for him to pull the beard off and be like, and I'm your daughter. There's something like that. It's just, <laughs> there's a lot of, it's like we get taken up to a point and then we never really make it past that point because there is a huge to your point, David, there is a logic that goes through this movie, but he's just not showing you the cards. He's just not showing you like, oh, and this is because of this. Like, there's this whole idea of liquid karma, this new energy source. It's an ancient thing that runs through the earth, and it's in the shape of a serpent. And I think that ties into Bai Ling's character, whose name is Serpentine, and she's got the magic, and while Sean's got the science, and it kind of plays into this whole, like, Tesla thing where it's uh, this energy field that surrounds the earth. This whole thing, too, of there being the doppelgangers, and that that's... There's a doppelganger of The Rock and a doppelganger of Sean William Scott. And when they touch each other, that's how the world ends. It's very, you know, it's, it's like the opposite of Ron Silver touching himself in Time Cop rather than them destroying themselves. They destroy the world. When it came to the fluid karma, I was looking at it from um, the aspect more of like not knowing that background unless that's in the film and I just missed it or it's definitely in the um, uh, the graphic novels. I just saw it as a statement on alt energy. And then the point is he becomes corrupted by the politics. He becomes corrupted by the, the power that he can get. He was just going, yeah, even if we could develop alt energy, it would probably get in bed with politics and become this awful thing that's not meeting its intended purpose to, to help the world anyway. And then there's the scene where Biling cuts off uh, the Japanese guy's hand because there's this there's this whole kind of gangsterism idea of of corporate control and things like that. So so, again, that's a, that's another layer of satire. He wants to talk about corporate greed and he wants to talk about political corporate greed and and even if if you're doing something supposedly for mankind are you open and susceptible to that corruption and how easy it can be again it's another one of those i'm getting a i'm getting a flesh wound and i really want you to stab the the heart of this really hard tis but a scratch i said earlier that Richard Kelly gets in his own way. And I almost feel like he needs a partner or somebody to like help push him to where he needs to be when it comes to this, because 
you know, you're talking about the canned cut and you're talking about the theatrical cut, and it's almost like there needs to be a third cut where you combine the two and maybe fill in some of the blanks as well. I think Kelly would probably agree with you. I mean, he's always kind of maintained this has been a work in progress. And I know on this podcast, on this very podcast, you're going to be talking to Richard Kelly in a bit, and I haven't heard that interview yet, and I'm dying to. But in every interview that I've read of his or, or heard of his, he's always kind of expressed – if not regret, then kind of remorse that he, this film never really was finished completely the way that he wanted it to be. Like the, the can cut was super rushed. And then the theatrical cut was at least in part shaped by the panic after the reaction to the can cut. And I'm doing a documentary now on a very famous film that was re-edited in panic. And one might say that it's not a, it doesn't, generally doesn't give you the best edit when you're editing in panic. Like when you're trying bit desperately to like, oh shit, nobody knows what the hell is going on. We need to rearrange everything. It's like, generally speaking, and aside from that open, which I agree with you, Rob, I think is necessary in the film. I think that you need that animation narration, like here's the world. This is what's happening. Two minutes or whatever. Aside from that, I, I don't see much in the theatrical cut that I think is better than the can cut the can cut weirdly holds together better for me it's like what 19 20 minutes longer it's still loopy but the pacing and and the way that you know information is disseminated feels a bit more like this is the movie that it, this is the movie as it wants to be that third cut for me at least mike would be taking that open from the theatrical cut like that basically that that intro uh with the graphics and then just stick it on the can cut and uh, or in the can cut, like right right before the opening credits or what uh, opening title, whatever it is, and that would probably be the best cut, at least that I know of, of this movie. Unless Richard Kelly has some amazing outtakes, we don't know. Richard, we're waiting. Please report to edit room B. Your editor's waiting. I want to see this cut, please. Whatever the longest cut is, really, just just like, throw everything in there and let's we'll, we'll work it out. We'll figure it some out. Some sort of assembly cut where you actually get to see. Yeah, I would be so happy. Like you know, you're talking about because like you know, Rob, you were talking about me like because I one of my gigs was I was the editor of the theatrical cut of fifty. Uh, excuse me, the director's cut of fifty four, which was a big six month thing where we <laughs> went back to the original negatives and and more or less started from scratch and made it the movie that kind of like, you know, Mark Christopher, the writer director had actually sold to Miramax before they got crazy and decided to cut out all the sex and drugs in a movie about 54. If you can imagine um, another brilliant move by the Weinstein brothers, but you know, we put it back together, but I would love to like just sit in a room with Richard Kelly and be like within with the assembly of this, with all the footage and be like, okay, we'll add narration. We'll add graphics. We'll do whatever we need to do. We can make this work. And I think there might be a cut for that. The one thing that I'm happy that they didn't do with this, Mike, is uh, – and you just did this a few weeks ago on the show, and I would advise anyone who's a fan of that film and hasn't had an opportunity to listen to that episode to go back and listen to it – is Brazil. And what I'm kind of happy with is that the theatrical edit of this still has a lot of the teeth and a, a lot of the effort that was in the can cut. Because I think the worst thing that could happen would be for a studio to take this away and then recut it. And then it's it's neither fish nor fowl. And you end up – yeah, and then you end up with something like the Love Conquers All Sid Sheinberg edit of Brazil that just – is 90 minutes and doesn't really work. But that was like born out of this panic about having a happy ending with a movie that was being released in 1985. Like, first of all, I don't think that we're, I don't think that any studio 
would be like, no, we must have a happy ending to this weird, dystopic, crazy <laughs> two and a half hour movie about the end of the world. It's like, well, you know, guess what? The world ends. It's like, you know, as far as the world ending, Southland Tales has about the happiest ending you can have about a movie where the world ends at the end. It's like shown as like, if not a good thing, then an inevitable and, and loving thing. It's not shown as like this, you know, 2012 level violent disaster. Like most other films from The Rock. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I think that the film, I mean, we're talking about like what the film is trying to do and trying to say. And yes, it's satirical, but I think that. The film really, and I think this is might be why I respond to Richard Kelly's work. I feel like the film has an incredibly warm and optimistic and generous heart at the center of it. I think Donnie Darko did. I think The Box does. I think that Domino does. And a very spiritual rooting. Basically, at the end of it, it's just kind of like, look at all these crazy people running around like any of this shit matters. Guess what? In like 48 hours, the entire world is going to end because of these plot devices we can go into and you'll watch it but you know we're all kind of coming back to the light that bore us originally and like all this stuff about you know elections and tapes and drugs and doritos it all who cares it's like you know there's a spiritual center at the heart of all of his work and i would love to talk about the box but i don't want to spoil the ending but i was very moved by the ending of the box because it it kind of like took its kind of genre whatever this genre, you know, kind of construct and flipped it and then made something really actually genuinely moving and something that hung with me for a very long time. And I think that there are parts of Southland tales like that. They're like, like, especially the end, uh, what happens to Lou Pucci's character, what happens to basically everybody on that Zeppelin. I feel like there's, there's a genuine, loving heart at the center of this. And I feel like that's really lovely to say much more so than I would say Zardoz. Zardoz is a, is, I mean, it's a, it's an, it's an epic story. It's a genius story and it's over stuff with ideas, but at the center of it, it's kind of got this Robert Fry butch thing where it's like, you know, this is the way man is supposed to be, Uh, you know, and Borman was very like that and into that and at the time and that's fine. But this movie is just kind of like, we're all loving, beautiful creatures of light. Why are we all running around being stupid? I do want to talk about some things that I really enjoy about this film. One of them is the look of it. One of them is the production design. Every prop, every location that you're in, to look in the background and look at the graffiti, look at the poster art. I mean, they, uh, between this, in this film, there are two factions. There's the neocons and there's the neo-Marxists. And I don't know if the rock or Kristenau or, or the Tavner brothers are part of either of that world. I guess that Kristenau is part of the neo-Marxists, but to see all of the, different posters that they have and to see the the face of Marx in different places. I mean, there's a scene that takes place in some sort of like a cafeteria and you can see on the back wall, like all of these posters that have Boxer Santeros's name and maybe his image. But then on the other wall, you can see all these faces of Karl Marx. So there's a lot of cool things as far as this goes, a lot of great looks to it. 
one thing I really like too is the use of poetry and the use of music, the use of lyrics from music to go through this. I mean, when they start quoting Three Days by Jane's Addiction, I'm just like, oh, that's really nice. And then the Three Days also plays into the idea of this being kind of a, a biblical story and relying on the book of Revelation to take us to the end of the world. You could recast the Baron or, <laughs> or Dr. Westphalen, the Wallace Shawn character, as the Antichrist because he's basically playing that role. And you can see it's got this weird mix of magic and science and all of these things that people glom onto. And it's like, well, to your point, David, maybe we shouldn't be worrying about that. Maybe we shouldn't worry about Bud Light and Doritos and all of these consumer goods, you know, that you have a tank that is branded with Hustler. You know, you just have all of this product placement that runs throughout it. And it's like, okay, yeah, this stuff is basically going to cause our downfall. This will bring about the end of the world and that the world ends with a whimper and not a bang. I mean, quoting T.S. Eliot in there, I thought was very smart, using the idea of Robert Frost and the, the road less travel, the, you know, the, the, the path to, uh, diverges in the woods. You've got the two guys, the two doppelgangers walking down either one of these paths, and it's like, okay, it's nice. There are some nice things to this, and I, I don't want to feel like I'm just piling onto this movie. I would love to see Richard Kelly actually be able to take this to completion because it feels like it's very undercooked. This is fucking raw! Because that's like how it feels sometimes. I'm almost afraid to go near this film at times because I'm afraid of getting food poisoning. Didn't he talk about like having the anim- like the, the, the graphic novel prequels? Didn't he talk about somehow integrating animation from those graphic novel prequels interspersed into this movie in some kind of a flashback formation, which I think is like, that's okay. If you can make that work, that's a great idea. It'll, it'll make the movie like four hours long, but I'm down. He actually went back and wrote a movie script for those first three books. So in 2010, he wrote the movie of the, the, the three books that we didn't see. So, I mean, he's, he's on board for doing, I think basically what you're talking about, making it, I think a long-form television series would be best for this. Attention, Netflix, if you're listening to this, please just throw them like – how much money would that take? Like a million? Half a million? This is not much. Like animate some stuff. Like put it in this movie. Put it on Netflix. Come on. I mean just like finish this movie. It's all there. It just needs like some money and some time. And Like will you just finish the damn movie? If we can get the Snyder Cut, I'm sure we could get the <laughs> – the longer version of this because <laughs> I would actually like to see the finished version of this. Zack Snyder can go fuck himself as far as I'm concerned. The use of animated sequences within a, a feature like this would be like that extended cut of Watchmen or or uh, Kill Bill, which also has, you know, that animated sequence. Something like Kill Bill, but it's like it's like the TV version of Dune, right? Like when what David Lynch took his name off of, and they they basically animated a bunch of storyboards. To me, that's not that outlandish. I mean, you could do something like that and and help extend this and 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 add more to the um, to the universe to explain some of this stuff out. And I also find it funny that there's two directors in here, and one of which gets shot in the can. I think that's hilarious. You know, I don't know if you got that cameo. And then the other one, which led me to to think that maybe the use of a certain term was a little homage to the other director who has a speaking role, which is Kevin Smith in makeup, was when there's that scene you were talking about, 
where Boxer comes in and his wife's there and then Krista now's there and they're looking at the porn film and they're like, so cock chugging too, huh? Now, the only place I had ever heard the term cock chugging was Kevin Smith. Kevin Smith uses that several times throughout his various films, I think, starting with Clerks. So to me, I'm wondering if that's a little nod to Kevin Smith there, because I know Kevin Smith was a huge supporter of this film. Like I have I mean, granted, he's in it, but I've read interviews where he goes, you know, everybody's really hard on Richard Kelly. He deserves to, to be a genius and to be given money and to go out and do whatever he wants. And then at the same time, I was reminded of Smith just taking a dump on a director that I really love, and it's specifically a film that I really like of, his, of from this director, and that's Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia, where he goes, it's a big, sprawling mess, and there's a musical number in the middle of it, and what the fuck is he trying to do? And I'm like... That's Southland Tales. You could just swap out the names, and it's the same thing here, because there's a musical number in the middle of this, too. They're the same picture. Smith also, when we're talking about these comic books, it was, I'm not sure if it was his company, but he was highly involved when it came to the comic books of this. So yeah, he is a major supporter of Kelly and I'm sure that he and Kelly have had some incredible conversations, especially while baked. And he probably is just like (laughs) coming up with all kinds of crazy shit. He's just like this without the cannabis. Wouldn't that be scary? Which is, you know, more power to him. It's the old uh, Salvador Dali quote. I don't do drugs. I am drugs. Isn't it great to watch movies by directors who are drugs? You know, you can watch any standard movie anytime. And certainly we need good movies, better movies, more interesting movies. I love the fact that there are movies like this in the world. I love the fact that there's art like this in the world. Again, my main critique of people who like dump all over this film indiscriminately, it's just like, yeah, but what do you want? from your movie? What do you want from life? What do you want from your cinema experience? Like, this is life. It's like, don't you want to sometimes sit down with the product of someone's crazy obsessions? Like, a lot of which works. Some of it doesn't. And let it just kind of wash over you and and let you feel all the feels. You know, I think the best movies, like the, the ones that I come back to most often are the ones that don't totally work or are somewhat impenetrable. And it's like, I find myself engaged. I find myself reacting in different and and unexpected ways to different things. Like even when I saw the can cut again yesterday, only the second time I'd seen it, the first time was at LACMA back in 2019. I I found myself reacting to this movie in ways that I didn't expect or remember. You know, stuff that didn't work before worked for me a little better this time. Stuff that worked for me. I remember working didn't work at all, but I don't feel like there's any higher compliment to a film. I mean, the only thing that you could say about this film is that it doesn't completely come off. It's like you look at something like Citizen Kane overstuffed with ideas. Every single frame is like this information and emotion injection. Like, you know, every moment in Citizen Kane is another thing that you're there in and processing and emotionally involved in. Or like any of the greatest movies like Vertigo or Rear Window or or Eight and a Half. It's like you watch these movies and you're on this thing and it, everything, it's like a beautiful car that's chugging along. It's like it's running perfectly. This does not run perfectly. <laughs> Zardoz does not run perfectly. Like there are a lot of movies that don't run, but this is an experience. There is no other movie like this. There's no further movie like even remotely like this. Like it's not even attempted. And, you know, I feel like, you know, as, as film lovers and hopefully anyone listening to this podcast is a film lover. That's the shit we need. 
That's the shit that makes all of these movies, all the mediocre, bad, you know, big budget, whatever movies that we sit through and think, okay, that was okay. It's like, these are the moments that make all of that worth it. I think you're forgetting another film that has both Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Sean William Scott, which is The Rundown. That's a good movie. I will watch The Rundown any day of the week. I I will watch Southland Tales once every couple of years. And I agree with you that we do need to push the envelope and we do need to have movies like Southland Tales. Do I have to enjoy them? No, not necessarily. Do I appreciate that he's trying, that he's swinging for the fences? Yeah, I agree. That's that's fantastic. I'm glad that you're trying different things. Like I said, I think he just needs to go a little bit further. I think that's probably what all three of us are saying, is that in some way, he needs to take this just a little bit farther. This might be a stretch, so feel free to smack me back down if you're not following me here. He kind of reminds me of Michael Mann in a weird way. In the sense that Michael Mann, and I've I've been a defender, even especially of his later work, which no one wants to defend, really. Very few people want to defend Black Hat or Public Enemies or Miami Vice. But they're all like deeply committed to their vision. They're deeply committed to a very different, emotionally distant, abstract kind of cinematic experience. It's a different feel to sit through something like Miami Vice than it is to sit through almost any other big budget action movie. It's not playing the same game. You know, it's, it's, it's about spirituality. Maybe that's what the connection is in my mind. Michael Mann, especially in his last several movies, feels like a deeply spiritual director. Um, there are a lot of moments in those movies of like protagonists looking out into the distance at nothing, you know, it's <laughs> just kind of like, and you're like, why is this here? And then you realize why it's here as the movie goes on. It's like, because this is about an existential, if not crisis, then at least question that these people have. Yeah, they're in the middle of this action movie and, you know, uh, Hemsworth is trying to prevent, you know, the world from being hacked by bad guys or, you know, Christian Bale's trying to capture Dillinger, Johnny Depp. But it's like at the end of the day, you know, you're looking out in the distance like, who am I and what am I doing this for? And you don't get that a lot. And in Southland Tales, the whole movie is almost like, what's the point of this? And it's easy to like point at this movie and be like, Dude, this is ridiculous. What's the point of this? But that's kind of the point of the movie. And it's done very entertainingly. So it's not like you're I, – I never got the angry reaction that you had, Mike. But I don't know. I think it opens a question about like when you're playing on these levels of budgets. Uh, certainly, Michael Mann has much, much, much bigger budgets than Richard Kelly ever had. Uh, but still, a $20 million budget for Southland Tales is not nothing. It's certainly not Donnie Darko. I think that was done for like three or four and I don't know what the box was done for, but it was probably not – if it was around like, you know, 20 or 30, it was probably a lot of that went to, you know, the the A-list star. There's a spiritual and resonant component to all of this. And it kind of demands or, 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 or challenges the audience to kind of step with it into these weird areas that – I don't know. I think a lot of people go to the movies to forget their, the meaning of their existence. I prefer my art to try to reinforce it or, or at least challenge it. It's one of those that I'll probably rewatch at, at a later date. I don't feel angry about it. I don't feel th- that's one of the things. I mean, can we just take a little side path here for a second? I, I really have a problem with sort of online 
commentary, which is funny because this is what we're doing right now. But there really seems to be an attitude among people. And I have another friend of mine who's a who's a film writer who is just like, what is it that people don't like a movie? And then all of a sudden you're trash, you're a terrible human being, because for whatever reason, you don't see the brilliance of whatever it is that I'm trying to show you. That's the thing. It's like, I don't get pissed off because I don't like something. I just go, that's not for me. Like, and then I also realize too that, and, and I think this is interesting to the point that you were making, David, is that art changes with time. And it's not that the art changes that you change and that you see different things, different things resonate. You've had different experiences in life and therefore you're going to relate to something different. I always talk about that in reference to, you know, Bunuel again. When I saw Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, first time I saw it, I was like, what is this? I don't fucking see this movie. And then I watched it again and I go, this is brilliant. And it's, you know, one of my favorite films of all time now. That's magical, though. Isn't that magical? It's like, you know, and, and, it, and it also indicates, and this is about you, really, as a person and as someone who appreciates and looks at art, you're evolving. You're growing. I mean, what is there to do in life except grow? It's like, I, I can't even tell you the, the number of movies that I've seen. Like the first time I saw it, I was like, that's trash. I don't like it. But yet I felt the need to like watch it again. And it just improves. There are a number of movies like that for me. It's either that or it's a movie that I saw at the time and I go, I can't relate to this, but I know the audience for it. And I'll give you an example of that mm -hmm. was when I worked at the main art theater, we showed Catherine Brillet's Romance. Now, Romance came out in 1999. It is this movie all shown through the perception of, of a young woman in her 20s as she's navigating a relationship and then all of the other things that go around it. Well, if, if I was a young woman in her early 20s or maybe even older, I could probably relate to that because this is how women relate to men and how men relate to women and sexuality and all of that stuff. But when I saw it when I was like 21, I go, yeah, that's not for me. But I had other friends of mine who were the same age as me, guys who went to go see it, straight guys, and go, that's pretentious. It's a pretentious, like, it, it's so pretentious, it's like that Calvin Klein obsession ad. It's so damn pretentious, <laughs> I never want to see that thing again. And I go, no, no, no. I go, it's not for you. It's not for you. I go, so sometimes when I see certain films, I go... I, I understand if, if it works technically as a narrative. Does it hang together? Does it make its points? Does it set up ideas and pay off those ideas? Okay, there's that, that is that level. And then there's the level of do those things resonate with me? And at times there's the, there's about a handful of ideas in Southland Tales that I'm like, God, it's like I would really like someone to do something on that because to me, there's a lot of territory that you can go in in there, you know, and that's why that there's other films that I can think of. You know, when we talk about, you know, totalitarian states and things like that, I mean, Brazil, 1984, those kind of ideas where you can have that kind of stuff. And that's the point of those things. And in here, it's this kind of odd mash. And I think that because to me, it just seems watered down. It seems like he put a little more things in there that was trying to make it a little more open to a broader audience. And then at the same time, it ends up being like, I, I remember the line that Paul wrote when he did, uh, when he was writing for orbit about reservoir dogs way back when dogs first came out and it was too bloody for the art crowd too arty for the blood crowd. And that is kind of what I feel here. It's like, it's too general for an art audience and it's too arty for a general audience. And therefore it's kind of in this weird, liminal space in between everything well but we do have to point out that that take on reservoir dogs is fucking wrong and has been proven wrong it was not too bloody for the art crowd or like i mean that is a movie that everyone like 
basically regards pretty highly at this point. I don't know anyone to, today, but not in 1992. But even at the time, I saw it when it was released, and like, I mean, it got it. It put him on the map. He got money to make Pulp Fiction because everybody was like so taken with that movie. So I mean, yeah, it's like. I mean, you can call this neither fish nor fowl, but I don't, I mean, you, you said something about him like trying to water it down so it's more palatable for a general release. I do not think that Richard Kelly was remotely regarding making this more palatable. I don't think anything about this movie, and that's one of the reasons I love it. I don't think anything about this movie was like compromised to make it more palatable. I think that he wanted to tell the story about these kooky, crazy, weird, hilarious, nonsensical characters at the end of the world under this police state and all that stuff. I think that the points are just kind of tangential. They're not, I mean, it's, you know, sure. It's a satire about, you know, police state gone amok and all that stuff, but it's really about these wacky, crazy characters with the, can we talk about the names for a moment? How does he come up with all of these crazy names? I want to, I literally, that was the one thing I was reminded of yesterday. I was just like, I don't even remember all the names, but they're so, all of them are so like, and you know, any, you talk to any writer of any screenplay, names are always kind of a thing that's just like, oh God, I have to think of like another name for something. It's just like, you know, Krista Lynn Kapowski, AKA Kristen Now, you know, Nana Mae Frost, Baron Von Westphalen, you know, Cindy Pinzicki. It's like, I love all of his names. I want to know how he comes up with them. These are great. Roland Taverner. It's just like you even say the name and you get, you kind of get a vision of who these people are. Pilot Abilene, you know, uh, Vaughn Smallhouse. It's. I'll tell you that Taverner comes from Philip K. Dick. It comes from Flow My Tears, as the policeman said, which is a nice nod because this movie is steeped in Philip K. Dick world. I can't remember which episode it was, but I wanted to, I wanted to do an article years ago called Feels Like Dick, which is just movies that feel like they are Philip K. Dick adaptations, but aren't. And this definitely feels like it. The idea of the schizophrenia, the doubles, the science fiction, but set in a real world situation, this kind of alternate future. I mean, there's a very, very Philip K. Dick type of ideas. And so, yeah, I love that he did make that little nod to flow my, well, he made more than one little nod. He has people saying flow my tears at least twice. And then having Taverner in there is a nice nod to flow my tears, the book, which is um, probably one of the Philip K. Dick books. If you're going to read Dick, you need to read Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said. I just want to say, you you thought of writing this essay called Feels Like Dick and you didn't. It's like, dude, come Maybe on. We'll have to do a come series on. of Feels Like Dick movies. Listen, like, give us gay cinephiles a break. Give us something to read, man. It's like, you got that title. You had my curiosity. But now you have my attention. I know it's like it's like it's not initially what I thought it was going to be, but I'm not upset. Follow up, man. Attention. Do I have your attention? Interested. Are you interested? Okay. (laughs) As long as we're talking about gay stuff, is it wrong that I found like that 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 actor who played Kenny Chan who gets killed kind of cute? No, that's nothing wrong. I just want to say I just want to throw that out there because (laughs) that always hung with it. I think that actor actually looked him up a while ago and he's done other stuff and he's straight as as an arrow and is married and all that stuff. And uh, but I was like always in this movie. He's like this cute little like roly nerd kind of overweight but he runs around he has this heroic moment and i'm just and he has that weird close-up where his eyes are all digitally distorted 
it's so amazing to look at this movie now and look at Dwayne The Rock Johnson now. He looks like he is a foot shorter now than he is. Like, I don't know if it's all the muscles that he has now, but like you look at him in this, look at him in, say, Pain and Gain, and they look like two different people. He, Yeah, he looks like the mini-me version of what Dwayne The Rock Johnson looks like now. We also have to talk about his performance because this was, I think, his first movie or one of his first movies, and he's really, really funny. His comic timing in the car with Sean William Scott when he's interviewing him, that whole scene and his reactions to it are really, really effective and funny. When he, when he tells off Bailing at the end, like, and he's like, what does he say? Like, you stupid bitch. I, I, I found him almost relentlessly entertaining in this film. I always like him in pretty much anything that he's in. He's been in some shit, shit movies, but he's also been in some great movies. And I think he always makes movies better just that he's in them. I want to say Faster is one of my favorite neo-noirs. He's really good in that, and I just find that to be a great movie. And he made the uh, second G.I. Joe movie palatable, because that first one was garbage. And I really like the second one, and I mostly really like it because of him. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break and play an interview with the writer-director of Southland Tales, Richard Kelly. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Join me, Jamie Benning, on the Film Inventories podcast, particularly if you enjoy stories like designer Nilo Rodis Jamiro convincing George Lucas to push him around to help gain the support of his crew on the ailing Howard the Duck. Plam! The door opens. It's George. Everybody gasps. George makes a beeline to me. I'm literally back against the wall. Or hear puppeteer Tim Rose's emotional story behind that iconic Admiral Akbar shot in Return of the Jedi. I believe the war is something to be proud of but not to celebrate or how Star Wars editor Paul Hirsch tackled cutting so many successful films the thing that I learned from working with the Palmer is that tension depends on a clock you need to have the sense that time is running out maybe Oscar winning sound designer Mark Mangini's insightful chat about his work on Blade Runner 2049 not a, not a single sound from the original Blade Runner in the new film a great deal of inspiration that's the Filmumentaries podcast with me Jamie Benning. The new streaming service, Film Movement Plus, opens up a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best films from around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are some of the best films from 2020, including The Wild Goose Lake, Zombie Child, and more. Available on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, as well as streaming online and on mobile, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But as a listener of the Projection Booth, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30-day free trial plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code PROJECTION. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. And for one lucky listener every week this month, January 2020, I am giving away a full year's membership to Film Movement Plus. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at ProBoothCast.com for more information on how you can get this great prize. Hey, it's Rob St. Mary from The Projection Booth. And I want to tell you about a humble guy you might have heard of before. It's my podcast partner. His name's Mike White. And he's got a new book out. It's called Cinema Detours. And I just want to tell you that the guy is so humble that he won't even talk about it on the show. He won't even ask you to go to our website, projection-booth.com, or go over to Amazon.com and pick up either the paper version or... You know, the ones and zeros, the digital for your Kindle. 
he want to ask you to do that? That's how humble he is. But I think you need to do it. You want to know why? Because it's a great read, and especially with the movies that you've seen before, it's kind of like chatting with an old friend and having a good laugh. And as for the movies that you haven't seen, well, i got to throw a beat down on Mr. White because he's now expanded my list probably another hundred films that I need to see. It's Cinema Detours. You can get it at Amazon.com, either in paper form or for your Kindle. And, of course, you can always get more information about this book and the Projection Booth podcast at projection-booth.com. It's Cinema Detours. Hi, I'm Dave Kittredge, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and I'm the host of The Outcast, presented by Outfest, a new podcast where I have conversations with LGBT creators and allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. I was scared because I thought, oh, what am I doing? Like, here I am selling my soul. But when I realized what the movie was, I'm like, I'm in. Let's do, let's make this wonderful movie. The freedom of ad-libbing and letting things happen in the moment. With Stephen Trask, let's write something that involves stand-up comedy drag punk rock i was so rebellious and precocious i guess the definition of gay to me is freedom women gave the show its life i feel like well it's also a bit of a hunk fest you guys are right, hot true. as hell you are too kind that was, only, <laughs> that was only 15 years ago it's a no holds barred talk with iconic creators and performers it's not white people it's not i hate white pe- it's dear white people it's how you start a letter the whole climax of the show is a sex scene between Melchior and venla and i remember feeling personally self-conscious about never having been with a woman in any way <laughs> shape or form i'm always thinking about the audience make them feel make them laugh and make them cry i mean that's as simple as it is for me i had been not wanting to be a part of the film it was clear in the edit that i had to you know really reshape it so the film really told me what it needed to be cinema is an empathy machine and and it sort of allows you to see yourself in people's faces that you normally wouldn't see humanity in i get emotional just talking about it and the tea is definitely spilled david don't edit anything of this out (laughs) no no they don't want to hear all the charming stories they want to hear the ugly gory relationship that jim and i have (laughs) we're cutting that part out by the way and with guests like john cameron mitchell christine vachon laverne cox jonathan groff justin simeon jim fall miss coco peru rachel mason jeffrey schwarz H.P. Mendoza and fabulous queens Shangela, Eureka, and Bob the Drag Queen. I'm sweating the house down. Oh, mama. You never know what's going to come up. You know me, I'm so big and strong that Eureka and Bob actually hide behind me and I protect She's them. She's quite the chihuahua, mama. She does pop up. I was up. like, wait, should we have had security the whole time? I think they think I'm the security, bitch. It's season one of The Outcast, presented by Outfest, premiering in the summer of 2020. Hope you can join us. I think the earliest draft of the Southland Tales screenplay that I could find was from mid-2001. And I'm so curious about how the project changed between that and when it came to the screen. Can you tell me a little bit about the evolution of it? This project was first written right after Sundance of 2001 when we premiered Donnie Darko. Donnie Darko, most people don't remember this or it's just an afterthought except for the people who were there at Sundance, it was not well-received at all at Sundance. We were kind of the big disappointment of Sundance that year. We had ridden into the festival as, believe it or not, we were the first film with digital effects at the Sundance Film Festival. We rode into the festival with a lot of hype, and it was a $4.5 million film, you know, which was, at the time, a healthy budget. And we were the big disappointment of the festival. 
We could not get distribution. We didn't actually get any distribution until about five months after the festival. And that was just by the skin of our teeth. So we were in a pretty grim place after the festival. And I thought my career was just over before it had even began. So to cheer myself up, I wrote two spec screenplays. The first one uh, was called Bessie, which was a kind of a satire of a Michael Crichton thriller about a genetically engineered upright walking mutant cow that has limited speech capacity and telekinetic powers and all this crazy stuff. And it was a satire about a, a scientific media team brought in to manage the unveiling of this mutant cow to the world and exploit her for profit. And all everything goes wrong and everything goes to hell, of course. So that was my one of my spec screenplays that um, a lot of people really liked. <laughs> and to this day, it has sort of a cult following. And uh, then I wrote a draft of a script called Southland Tales. The original draft of Southland Tales is kind of like a big Lebowski-esque comedy crime caper about a group of uh, Venice Beach actors and a comedy troupe who hatch a plan to extort money from a famous movie star who's having a schizophrenic meltdown. The movie star is, is having an affair with a porn star with some crazy screenplay, and she is in collusion with these actors, one of which is a twin brother of a cop. And so they kidnap the twin brother who's a cop, and the acting brother is going to impersonate him on a research trip ride along with the schizophrenic actor. And they're going to stage a murder during the ride along with racist language that they're then going to use as a as blackmail to demand money in exchange for the footage of the murder from the famous actor. So it's a big blackmail extortion scam. Basically, everything goes to hell. People get killed. People continue to get killed, and then and then somehow the movie star ends up on a big blimp over downtown Los Angeles. They get shot down with a rocket launcher with the Hindenburg over downtown Los Angeles. <laughs> so that was the original draft of Southland Tales, and it was really fun. It was a fun script, and I remember you know my producing partner Sean McKittrick, who had just produced Donnie Darko. He read both scripts and was just like loving both of them. He's like, these scripts are hilarious. I love them. <laughs> Oh my God, it would be so great to make these. He was with me struggling to get distribution for Donnie Darko and trying to keep Donnie Darko alive and somehow get it to theaters. And so we had these two fun comedy scripts. And of course, they were both expensive. The, the Bessie is, was at the time impossible to make just because how are you going to do the big mutant cow with telekinetic powers? And it's just, it's, it's a do it right is going to be really expensive. <laughs> and it's such a bonkers concept of a movie, you know? So, but there were people who loved the script, like really loved it. And Southland Tales are fans of the script as well. Tony Scott read the draft of Southland Tales, really, really liked it. Hired me to write Domino, to do a draft of Domino you know, which went on to go into production with Kieran Knightley and Mickey Rourke and Edgar Ramirez and Christopher Walken and Delroy Lindo and Monique. And just like, so all the domino stuff started to take off. I've skipped over 9-11, you know, 9-11 obviously occurred on the eve of the release of Donnie Darko and the world fell into two catastrophic wars and Patriot Act and sort of surveillance and this this world of, of the constant terrorist threats and 
the pop culture of the of the 2000s, the pop culture explosion, the celebrity culture explosion. And um, and so I just went back to Southland Tales and I just started to add in layers of politics and religion. And I just added this whole big Philip K. Dick layer uh, that I felt was much more exciting, you know, and I, I was like, why am I blowing up the Hindenburg over downtown L.A.? What does that even mean? Why is there a futuristic blimp? You know, why does that exist? I felt like I needed to uh, accelerate the science fiction and the religion and the politics and just make this a much more substantial, epic, complex story. And so I just kept advancing all of that forward. And then it just gained momentum. I flirted with a project for about a year also called Knowing uh, script that uh, it eventually went went on to get to get made with uh, Alex Proyas directing Nicolas Cage at a much bigger budget. But I almost directed the fifteen million dollar version of that script that I had worked on for about a year at Fox Searchlight. But then it collapsed over budget and foreign rights with the owner of the screenplay, and it just was too ambitious to do for fifteen million dollars and maybe a little too cerebral, I think. Then I shifted into to Southland Tales. So that's all the stuff that was happening uh, on it on Southland Tales and its journey into production in 2005. I have to say, every time I watch the movie, I laugh a little bit because of the name Jericho Kane. Were you aware of The Sixth Day when you named your character Jericho Kane? Yes, and it's actually End of Day, not The Sixth Day. That's okay. You you cross you cross Schwarzenegger streams there, but yeah, that's okay. <laughs> It's uh, it's uh, end of days, and um, that was a very intentional reference. I actually kind of love the movie End of Days. I think it's kind of this camp classic because the world is going to end at midnight in Times Square <laughs> in the year 1999, and this was in the you know in the whole Y2K. I don't know if you remember the whole Y2K craziness. Everyone thought that all of the computer systems were going to shut down because of this sort of like archaic numerical computer glitch. <laughs> you know? And I'm sure there was an actual risk that a lot of hardworking computer experts helped to fix and everything. <laughs> but there was something about Y2K that was just remember when, when life was that simple, when all we had to worry about was Y2K. <laughs> You know, and so there was something about end of days that was just so absurd. This you know, with like demons and and you know the subways of uh, of Manhattan and Schwarzenegger blasting demons with like assault rifles and it just all the satanic apocalypse stuff. That film had this absurdity to it, and so we changed the spelling of Jericho Kane for Southland Tales. The last name is spelled in Southland Tales C A N E. The spelling and end of days, because I wanted to not be a complete plagiarist. I wanted to <laughs> to adjust my plagiarism or my homage by one one or two letters. The spelling of Jericho Kane and end of days is with a K, so I I changed it to C. But that that was it was a nod to Schwarzenegger. It was a nod to um, end of days, and I there was something about the name that felt it was comedic in its. Um, and it's sort of biblical feeling by actually spelling it with a C felt like I could just invoke the initials of our, of our savior in a way. And because there was uh, Dwayne's wearing all these uh, very symbolic uh, tattoos in the, f- in the film that uh, reference all the religions from earth and that we had the Christ tattoo in the middle of his back and that it bleeds like a stigmata at the end of the film. And so 
uh, you know, there was a lot of um, kind of ridiculous uh, symbolism going on. When did the decision to break the project into the three graphic novels and the three chapters of the film come about? So the original screenplay for Southland Tales was always divided into three chapters. I think the first draft, it was chapters one, two, and three with like old English text. And the original narrator of Southland Tales was a distinguished British narrator, which I think was, was me kind of maybe doing a riff on the narration in Barry Lyndon, which is like one of my all-time, maybe my, my greatest film of all time, in my, in my opinion, my, my favorite film of all time, the most beautiful film ever made, I think. The idea was to do this absurd Los Angeles crime caper with a British narrator and sort of old English titles at each chapter. As the project evolved, and I, need, I had all these elaborate backstories for the characters, as I integrated all of the world building and the fluid karma, Trier products and Baron von Westphalen and the neo-Marxist movement, the U.S. ident and the, just the, the state of the world and, and Boxer's backstory in, the, in Lake Mead and Las Vegas and all of that stuff. It was just such a, a complex backstory. I started working on these graphic novels. And I'm like, okay, the movie is now chapters four, five, and six. It's a six chapter. It's a six chapter story. And then I'll publish graphic novels and it'll be this transmedia experience that no one's ever done before. And, and, and this was me being incredibly naive, thinking that anyone would ever read these graphic novels without realizing that it would make people perhaps confused or dislocated starting in with chapter four instead of chapter one. And People were going to think, oh, he's referencing Star Wars, you know, episode four or something. And it really was. It was really it's six chapters. And there's these three really important chapters that exist. I became very determined to make it six chapters. And as we got into production, I realized this distinguished British narrator, it's cute. And, you know, I'm trying to do a Barry Lyndon reference, but it really doesn't mean anything. There's no distinguished British character in the story it doesn't it's not quite tracking and then as i came to to with the idea of doing this musical dream sequence in the center of the film with justin timberlake uh lip syncing to the killers all these things that i've done as i became obsessed with realizing that sequence in the middle of the film and then when we actually shot that sequence with justin and it turned out so well and everyone was just so excited by that sequence and getting the song from the killers and licensing it and figuring that out. I realized Justin is breaking the fourth wall. He is looking directly into the lens. He must be the narrator of Southland Tales. It must be him and his backstory and the friendship with uh, Roland Taverner and his disfigurement in Iraq. That is the emotional core of the whole story. He must be the narrator. That makes sense. The, the pilot Abilene is the narrator. And the narration is breaking the fourth wall, which justifies his breaking of the fourth wall and looking straight into the lens in this uh, fluid karma dream sequence. Those kinds of like decisions, which were very pivotal in the evolution of the screenplay of Southland Tales all the way through production and you know, you know, a bit into post-production as, as well. Yeah, you reference things like uh, Three Days, the Jane's Addiction song, and then you've got all of the product placement in the film or use of products, I should say, like the Hustler tank and the Jetsonville brats and stuff. 
are you getting that stuff okayed before you even start to shoot? Or is that just like, hey, let the lawyers take care of it? Oh, yeah. Pro- uh, product placement and the clearance on this film was really intense. And it was a complex process to navigate. And you have uh, someone who's devoted in, you know, in your legal clearance department, you know, you know, as part of the, on staff, you know, in the crew of, of the film, clearing everything, you know, so we had Hustler cleared, you know, Budweiser, Panasonic, and, you know, all the, the, you know, Golden Palace, the gambling, Krista's, you know, product placement, the Golden Palace gambling, all that was cleared. We had all the, the product very much a part of the, the production design of the film. One of the things I loved about Blade Runner is the way that really Scott used product placement as part of the aesthetic of that film and this sort of the land, the urban uh, dystopian landscape of Los Angeles and Blade Runner, whether it's uh, Hitachi or Atari or Pan Am, you know, or Coca-Cola. I thought that was sort of beautiful. And with Southland Hills, I never had the money, uh, visual effects budget to achieve some of the bigger world building that I wanted to, that, that I would still like to achieve uh, in Southland Tales in terms of the, the Utopia 3 infrastructure out in Santa Monica Bay and some of the Trier Plaza and the Mega Zeppelin in downtown LA. All of that was meant to be much more grandiose or, or as Krista says, far more futuristic than scientists originally predicted. You know, I never had the, the world building CGI budget that I really wished I, ha- I had, you know, back in 2005, 2006. We were able to achieve a lot of the foreground location work, and we were got very creative with our transpo budget and our vehicles and extras, and we were able to build out the immediate foreground world in a really beautiful way in all of our the great expensive locations that we uh, used in Southland Hills. But it, you know, the one thing that I that I beyond the the huge expansion of the story that I hope to do is building out more of the, the larger world of Los Angeles, which is, is, was intended to be much more stylized than um, we, had, we were able to achieve in, in the existing versions. I want to talk a little bit about the casting, because you have such an interesting mix of people, but just such a, an incredible population of former cast members of Saturday Night Live. How did all of those people get involved with this? I had a wonderful casting director, Mary Vernu, and also her colleague, uh, Venus Kanani, who were just extraordinary in, in helping us get all of these, these amazing performers. And I have grown up just obsessed with Saturday Night Live since childhood. You know, I've probably seen almost every episode of Saturday Night Live. And I just think these are some of the most talented performers ever. And I, I think that if an actor can do comedy improv they can do anything i really believe that that like once they can do comedy improv they can take a step it's almost like a step backwards into doing drama to doing an understated drama and it's a question of the business is not fair to a lot of these performers because once you establish establish yourself as this incredibly funny person the business won't let you play a serious role they're like no you're not allowed to do that you're not allowed to play serious which is so unfair and it's so myopic and short-sighted of our business not to allow these performers to do anything and to play any kind of role. So I was so excited to get as many comedy improv people. And that's the, that's the shared DNA of almost every cast member here in Southland Tales. Even if they're not necessarily known for sketch comedy, they're known for like a cult film or cult comedies, you know, whether it's Curtis Armstrong or Zelda Rubenstein, you know, or 
history with like action films, Christopher Lambert, all of these people have wonderful improv skills and they're so funny. And so with beyond the, the Saturday Night Live uh, cast members, even a bunch of our lead actors had at some point hosted Saturday Night Live multiple times, you know, Dwayne and Sean and Sarah and Justin and probably even more cast members have hosted the show at some point. It just felt like there was a shared DNA with every cast member of this wonderful ability to think on their feet and just be funny, but playing it serious. They're all playing it serious and playing it with integrity. And that somehow will hopefully make it funnier because they're taking this material and they're taking the circumstances of the the story very seriously. It's interesting. You're the writer director of this, but yet encouraging improv, which I would think like would go against the grain of like, no, I wrote these words. They are sacred. I'm glad to hear that you're encouraging improv. Oh, well with this cast, I would be incredibly short-sighted and almost foolish. I think not to leave some room for improv and some of the funniest moments in the movie. Some of my favorite moments in the movie are all the result of the actors, you know, when John Lovitz and Sherry O'Terry are, you know, conspiring in the neo-Marxist compound, <laughs> that's all John and Sherry, you know, that's them. Hey, Richard, we have some stuff we want to try. I'm like, yes, go for it, please. And Amy Poehler and Wood Harris with their whole domestic dispute, I gave them the parameters of their domestic dispute. And I'm like, you guys go and have fun and come up with something. They're like, okay. And they went and workshopped and everything. And that is just like a gift. That's when you get to, to let the actors be your collaborator and you give them, it's like, it's like a parent uh, or no, it's like a student teacher relationship. And sometimes I'm the student and the actor is the teacher. I like switching roles like that and letting them be the teacher. You know, I'm the teacher who gives them homework they go home and they do their homework and they come back with like uh, an art project or they come back with a, a performance poetry day or something, you know, in the classroom and, and they get to deliver and recite their poem and recite their improv back to me. And as the teacher, I get to give them an A. <laughs> you know? It's all just high school. We're, we're, we're never going to escape high school uh, until we're uh, six feet under. <laughs> you mentioned Philip K. Dick and, through his work, there is such a theme of schizophrenia, and then there's a theme of schizophrenia in this, and I would say even possibly in Donnie Darko. And I'm curious, what is your experience with schizophrenia? Do you have somebody in your family or somebody that you know that has it? I've never, never uh, personally, to my knowledge, known anyone, I, I guess, with schizophrenia. I guess we've, we've all probably, every person has had some brush with mental illness, whether it's someone that they know or someone that they've been friends with or in their family or the definition of, of mental illness is such a broad gray spectrum scale and, and it's a sensitive topic. And it's one I think that we, we all need to approach with great empathy. And I think it's um, important to almost normalize the very concept of, of, of mental illness as a way of making people feel compassion. And, but also for people who might feel as though they are, experiencing or suffering from it in some capacity that they don't feel isolated or they don't feel uh, alienated or alone or that's very important and so i think i've what i've tried to do is maybe normalize or depict mental illness in, in a way whether i'm using as, as as a tool of science fiction or utilizing something like schizophrenia 
in a science fiction story as a as a interpretation. And I'm not ma- meaning to trivialize anyone who's suffering in any way. I, I think it's trying to use science fiction as an exploration, uh, a science fiction interpretation, perhaps, of how we might uh, define uh, a certain kind of mental illness. Again, which is a incredibly broad blanket category, and it's never something that I intend to to trivialize in any way. But if I can use science fiction as a tool of exploration. Um, and I, I know that Philip K. Dick did that in many of his, his novels and his short stories. I think it all comes down to therapy and art as a therapeutic exercise that um, I hope to pursue. You know, again, all art should be therapeutic in my mind. While I was doing research, I found, I think it was from 2010, another script that you'd written, which was actually the prequel trilogy. How far along did that project get? Have you ever thought about going back and doing those first three chapters? There's a whole new script that I've been working on for the expanded universe of Southland Tales, which does include a a prequel film, which is chapters one, two, and three. And then in an ideal world, that would lead into an expanded version of the existing film with new sequences integrated, which are chapters four, five, and six. So the expanded universe of Southland Tales is, in my ideal mind, two three-hour films that are like back-to-back three-hour films, which encompass the six chapters. So it is the 2008 timeline in chapters one, two, and three that lead up into the existing film, which is chapters four, five, and six. But there's a whole new meta layer within all of this, which is the screenplay within the film, the meta screenplay, The Power, which is written by Boxer Santeros and Chris Now, is discussed in great detail and referenced and we see glimpses of it all throughout the existing film. So there's exploring the world of the power, which is set in the year 2024. So the future is indeed far more futuristic than scientists originally predicted. There is the layer of 2024, which runs throughout all six chapters, which is sort of this new uh, level of the game, so to speak. Um, So I'm like uh, unlocking a new level of Southland Tales. That, in a, in a way, is almost like a sequel to the film. So it's almost like this big rushing nesting doll narrative of 2008 and 2024 that integrate and checkerboard back and forth in a serpentine narrative way. So that's sort of the big six-chapter version of Southland Tales, which I've been working on. And then especially during the pandemic, I've made a lot of progress with it, which I've broken through with a lot of uh, new ideas, and and I feel like it's very exciting. And um, if if it could ever be realized, I think it would it would exist uh, in a great way, like on a streaming platform where we can digest longer narratives and we can platform lo- longer narratives with great success. What else are you working on? Because you always seem to be working on so many things. You know, I, I was very fortunate to run across some of the other scripts, like Bessie, like your version of Holes, things like that. And it feels like you were just a writing machine for so much of it. There have been a lot of projects that have gotten very close to the finish line. And these these movies are big and they're complex. I've written a lot of original screenplays. We've gotten like a lot of projects to like the five yard line and almost gotten to a touchdown and a green light, you know, but then something happens, the timing doesn't work out or casting budget. This business is, is so difficult to navigate. And these movies are like, 
I, I say it's like kind of trying to thread a needle while riding a roller coaster. That's trying to get a film made. <laughs> and you've got to just ride that roller coaster over and over and over again and try and thread the needle. And it's like one of those contests where like whoever stays on the roller coaster the longest, the, the radio station gives them a free trip to Hawaii or something. You know? <laughs> That's trying to get a movie greenlit, you know? And so it's really, it's not easy, but I've been writing constantly and just building a larger arsenal. And so I'm hopeful that once the first project breaks, then a, a lot of this stuff will just, um, I'll be directing you know, a lot nonstop. And again, if I could figure out how to just do a really small movie, a really simple contained small movie, I could have directed a whole bunch of those. The appetite that I have is just much a canvas that's much bigger and more expansive. And I've just invested all the time that I could have spent doing a little contained movie into more writing, more and more and more writing. And it's, it's lonely and it's frustrating and it's alienating and it isn't always fun, but I'm glad I've done it. I'm glad I put in the time and I think it'll all pay off. I wish I had directed more than three movies, but I also started when I was 24 years old and I got to direct my first movie at 24. So I got a head start and I've taken a break, but I still have a long life ahead of me, I hope, and I hope to be directing a lot more in the years to come. Mr. Kelly, thank you so much for your time. This was such a pleasure talking with you. I'm so glad we were able to do this. Yeah, thank you. We are back, and we are talking about Southland Tales. The whole idea of the comic books in the movies really had me thinking the whole idea of, are there other movies that were one form and then became another form? And the one example that I thought of while I was doing this, well, first off, I was thinking about comic book movies. I find it fascinating that in the Marvel Universe, basically, you never have to read a comic book to enjoy the Marvel Universe because they're so different from the comics and they aren't necessarily beholden to the comics. They can recast things. They can use different characters for different stuff. So, yeah, it might not have been Tony Stark snapping his fingers to end the Infinity War. It might have been something completely different like Adam Warlock. Who's Adam Warlock? He's the guy in the extra scene at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy 2. So we haven't even really seen Adam Warlock very much. I found that interesting. The one other example that I thought of was Serenity, the movie, not the movie about the video game that's just absolutely apeshit crazy. The movie about the Firefly, the Firefly movie, which I never saw Firefly when I went to see Serenity. And I loved Serenity. I thought that Serenity was fantastic. And it was interesting to me that I didn't have to know about the TV show. I really compliment Joss Whedon for making a movie that stands alone, also kind of finishes up the TV show that he'd worked on. And I didn't feel lost coming into it at all. Oh, Mission Impossible. I mean, there's a lot of like movie movies that came from other things and then things that movies that then became that morphed into other things. It was a TV show that just became... I mean, look at Rocky Horror. 
I mean, that was, I mean, well, that was more traditional, I guess. That was a musical that then became a movie, but I would argue that it's not just a movie. It's like, it's a kind of like a traveling performance art at this point. I'm trying to think of things that you have to, or you maybe should have enjoyed something else, a book, and then you see the, the sequel to the book. There's nothing that's really jumping out as far as like, you really have to do your homework first and read this. The, the one thing that I can think of too, that just popped in my mind was those extra scenes from, from Prometheus, where there were a lot of things that were out there for Prometheus that had I watched those, I probably would have understood the movie Prometheus a little bit more, like seeing young Wayland uh, and his TED Talk. I talked about this when we were talking about Alien Resurrection recently, that there's a fan edit out there that takes that TED Talk and puts it into the Prometheus movie, so then I understand why are you using a... <laughs> A relatively young Guy Pierce made up to look like a really shitty old person, and we never saw the young version of Wayland. Well, it's out there. It's like it's that whole homework thing. Go out and do your homework, watch all these extra scenes, and then go see the movie, and now maybe you'll understand it. If you haven't seen them, well, then fuck you. And that's kind of like sometimes, you know, you're talking about why I get angry at Southland Tales, because I feel like, oh, you didn't read those three graphic novels? Well, fuck you. Here's the movie. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. I'll give you an example of one I did as an experiment on this show. I still haven't watched Twin Peaks, and I watched Firewalk with me. So there you go. Go listen to that episode and figure out how I know what the hell's going on. I don't know what the hell's going on. What, what was that like for you then? I'm, I'm curious because I've always said Firewalk – that's a really good example, by the way, because I've always said that Firewalk with me is is a really – amazing film and kind of a shattering film. It's one of the most shattering films. I'm, I really affected me deeply. Wh what did you think of it, that knowing kind of the history and backstory of Twin Peaks? Well, I had some sort of like cultural understanding of what Twin Peaks is, but I didn't watch the show. So watching it, like I said, I, I can't remember the all the points that I made. It's on the show, but it is... I was really confused. I was like, who's this guy? And what is that related to? And what? Like, you know, so if yeah. like, I was really lost. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example of one that doesn't pay off because you really have to know the backstory in order to go into it. And I know that you're going to be like, oh, God, him, the passion of the Christ. OK, the passion of the Christ in order for that film to pay off the way that it does for conservative Christians who went to go see that movie, you have to understand the Gospels that lead up to him being turned over by Judas and then handed over to Pilate and everything that happens after. Because there is no explanation of that in that film, you have to come in with that knowledge. You have to come in with the understanding of the Gospels and all of that. So... Say, for example, you put someone into the Passion of the Christ and said, here, watch this movie, but there are, I don't know, maybe they grew up Hindu and have no idea about Christianity, or maybe they're just someone who didn't even grow up in a Western culture, so they have no concept of Jesus and, and the Sermon on the Mount and all of that stuff. You would just be like, it's just a guy getting his ass kicked for two hours, and then he's put on a cross, and then there's like the earth opens up, and then it's over. That is a film that I can think of where you really need to know the backstory. Now, being an American, being a westernized, you know, white Anglo person, even if you're not religious, which I am not, you at least understand some aspects of 
Christianity because you're around it. You you know, you got family members, it's on TV, there's all of this stuff around you. So, so you can Well, it's culturally iconic. I mean, it's 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 almost like King Arthur. It's like, you know, Ex- Excalibur is an interesting example of this as well. Like Excalibur kind of just drops you in and it does, I mean, it tells you like, okay, he's the dad and he does this and Merlin's doing this and then, you know, Arthur sh- shows up, he pulls the sword out and then all this other stuff happens. But if you go into that movie without at least knowing something about King Arthur and what it was all about, it, it's, it must be a very kind of confusing experience. So that's the kind of thing that, that I was thinking about in reference to what, what you were talking about there, Mike, where there's something and you're like, I, I didn't read the book or I, I have no idea what's going on here. I know that there are things that you can know and read beforehand with a lot of other films where it's like, oh, this is enriching my experience. Like, had you known about X, then you would enjoy this work of art Y a lot more. Or Citizen Kane and Mank. That was another, uh, that just came to me. But you should probably watch Citizen Kane before you watch Mank. I haven't watched Mank yet, but I imagine that if you didn't know what Citizen Kane was, then you would really be fucking lost in that movie. To a certain extent. Well, I mean, you know, to be honest, you can get away with not watching Citizen Kane, but a lot of the moments, a lot of the visual references, and a lot of the fun would probably be lost on you. You know, it'd just be a story about this alcoholic writer who wants credit on something. That's really the story. But if you know Citizen Kane, or if you've seen it at least once, you'll see, oh, this shot is directly pulled out of Citizen Kane. Like, like there are shots throughout the movie that are literal references to Citizen Kane. I'll, I'll give you another one that, and this is more recent, and this was a big problem that I have with this movie, and I'm going to spoil it, so if you don't want to, to know this, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that basically if you don't go into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with a working knowledge that Sharon Tate is killed, then there's no tension in that film. Because we're following her around, and she's doing this, and she's doing that, and we all know in the back of our heads, in a matter of days, this woman will be gutted like a pig. And so will her friends in that house. Tarantino expects us to know that. And if we don't know that going in, there is no tension in that film. Well, but it's, he did the same thing sort of with Inglorious Bastards. It's like, you know, did Hitler ever go to a movie in Paris with all the other high command of Germany? It's like, no, that didn't happen. And yet, like, you know, we're going to assassinate him. It's like, well, if you know anything about history, you know that Hitler died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound in the, in the, in the bunker in Berlin in what, 45? He did not die in Paris in a, in a movie, but he uses that expectation against you. And I don't know how. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood would play if you didn't go in understanding who Sharon Tate was and the significance of her murder and the murders of the people in that house on Cielo Drive um, and how it changed how it changed culture and how it changed Hollywood. Right. And there's also the tension that comes with him going to the Spawn Ranch. Now, now we can see that they're kind of looking at the Brad Pitt character and they're kind of and he's looking around like, where am I and what's going on here? So that builds a little bit of that tension. But if you actually know some of that history, then it's even more menacing that scene and the and the Sharon Tate thing. So when the end comes and I'm not going to go past it, but but basically the thing is, is that you need to have that cultural understanding in order for that film to really work. I think if you showed that to someone who didn't know who Sharon Tate was, who didn't understand the Manson family, and I mean, you got to read a book or anything. I mean, just at least a cultural knowledge of it. Listen to Karina Longworth's genius <laughs> yeah. podcast. You must remember this. She did a 
that that is I, have you all listened to that because it's genius it's like a nine part series on manson and it's absolutely amazing yes i did no i haven't <laughs> <laughs> sorry she over she over enunciates uh, her words okay so it drives what? me a little she, she is crazy. Forgiven. She's a genius. She's a genius. <laughs> but that's, but that's another one. But that's more of a cultural thing. That's like a, a historical thing that you have to understand in order for the film to work. So, well, but I would I would actually argue with both of those movies, the Tarantino movies that we're talking about. They would both work if you did not know the deal. I think it works much better if you do know the deal. I think Inglorious Bastards works much better if you have some kind of working knowledge of what happened in the last two years of World War II. Um, and I think certainly Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I can't put myself in the position of not knowing the Manson murders or what happened. And certainly I went in knowing that it was about that and knowing it was about like, you know, a, a bunch of characters leading up to that. The ending of that film is like kind of crazy and cathartic enough to work, I think, just as a film itself as well. Not as well or not as, I think, emotionally or personally. But I think the genius of Tarantino, we're, we're way off South on Tales, but the genius of Tarantino is the fact that he, I guess, like Richard Kelly, to bring it back, subverts your expectations. Tarantino does it very explicitly. Tarantino takes these very famous, very well-established it things and – you're expecting these things that are very established, that are historical, that everyone knows about or most people know about. And he fucks with you. And that in and of itself kind of indicates it's about how we perceive reality, I think, in a way. It's like taking two steps back. What's real and what's not? What's like, you know, how do we view and kind of synthesize in our own minds what a movie is? You know, we've seen all these World War II movies, but they're not World War II Nobody died during making these movies. These aren't real tanks, you know, and if they were, they aren't really functional. You know, this is all a movie. And I think that everyone is, is susceptible to forgetting that. Everyone is susceptible to forgetting like that movies made about actual things that actually happened aren't actually the things that happened. You know, literally these are recreations and a lot of creative license has been taken with depicting these things. One of the things you were talking about, this balance between uh, reality and lack of reality, and I'm looking forward to listening to uh, the interview, which if you're listening to this episode, you've already heard. Uh, but one of the things that um, not seeing any of Kelly's films past this, so I have seen Dying Darko and now I have seen Southland Tales. He has an interest in end of the world and specifically schizophrenia. And this led me to kind of think, and I asked Mike, you know, to ask this question, but I really would like to have a conversation about just the idea of him uh, sympathizing. I, I think he's very sympathetic to a person who is dealing with uh, mental illness and specifically schizophrenia or dealing with the challenges of reality. You know, like what is reality and how is reality and how is reality put together? I mean, and identity in, in particular identity. And, 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 and that's like, I mean, the schizophrenia is kind of like the clinical term for someone who can't process it correctly. But I think that what, what you're saying really is, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's about how we view and interpret and process both our own identities and the reality that we're living in. And to me, those two films, I mean, if, if, if I'm looking for, you know, uh, it, yeah, I mean, if, if you talk about novelists or other filmmakers, I mean, what are themes that keep coming up? What are discussions that keep kind of having? What are the, you know, and between those two films, I mean, it's pretty obvious that he is really interested in sort of end of the world things, uh, apocalyptic, 
ideas and also through the lens internally of schizophrenia and what does that look like. And in here, he uses it in a little bit of a comedic way by doing that sort of duck soup mirror thing that he does with the uh, Tavner character when he's in the bathroom. But it's it, it's interesting for me sometimes when I was watching Southland Tales to go, how much of this is reality and how much of this is some sort of schizophrenic fever dream that the characters are having or that he is trying to put us through in some ways. Like, I want you to experience just the oddness of the world by twisting your perception through this lens. One thing, I'm just going to say one thing to the audience right now. I don't want to hear anyone say jack shit about you didn't ask him this. You didn't ask him that you didn't ask him this. I have 30 minutes to talk to this gentleman. That's it. So go fuck yourselves. If you think that you can interview somebody better, because I got the same shit a few weeks ago when I talked to Gary Jordan, I had 20 minutes to talk to that guy. I asked him some questions. He went off on a tangent. I didn't have time to bring him back. So fuck you if you think that you're a better interviewer than me who had 20 minutes for this. Lighten up, Francis. <laughs> Mike, 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 we love you. We love you. We accept you. You don't... <laughs> Like and the haters can go hate. It's fine. You know, I can't wait to hear the interview. I'm genuinely I mean, I, I understand what that's like. I mean, the craziest one that I ever had was I interviewed Danny Fields and Danny Fields was the guy who signed the Stooges to Electra and was the uh, the manager for the Ramones in the 70s. I asked him three questions in an hour. I mean, the guy just went on a tangent and just I'm just like, let him talk. Let him oh, talk. Yeah. Don't cut him off. These are great stories. Keep going. Yeah, I got a very – wasn't it a shame that he didn't ask more about uh, Alien Resurrection when he talked to Gary Dorton? I tried my best. They can fucking start their own podcast. You know, you cannot – you can't be like – we only can do what we can do. You can't be uh, sweating these, the, 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 the internet commenters. Uh, it's, it's death for any, uh, honestly, that's death for anybody who I was going to say death for any artist, yeah. but death for anybody who wants to get anything done. But those, you know? but those are two so. things that really made me think of like, what is it in Kelly's background? I mean, was he raised in a Pentecostalist or evangelical way where there's all of this end times prophecy discussion? Was he, you know, does he have a family member or someone that he knows who was a friend who was a schizophrenic and saw them? I mean, like, like, what is it about those ideas? Because those are very specific ideas that come up in both of the films and they're played in different manners. He, he works with them in different ways, but he's still working with those two core ideas of the end of the world. And then also sort of like, what is schizophrenia and what is, what, how do we view reality? Those are interesting concepts. Yeah. You definitely should check out the box. Um, I won't say that I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was interesting to take that original Matheson story and then just go off the fucking rails with it. And it's interesting too. You're talking about Kelly's background, the fact that his dad worked for, I think, NASA, and that becomes a major yeah. plot point uh, theme throughout the the box itself. I find that it's probably one of his more autobiograph- autobiographical films. It's interesting. It'll it held my interest for however long it was. Will I go back to it immediately? Maybe, maybe not. But it was it was kind of a cool idea to take that short story and expand it the way that he did. Well, and he expands it in that way that we've been talking about. Like, you know, he basically makes it a spiritual story. He takes a very simple, straightforward story, which you may have seen as a Twilight Zone, uh, called Button Button by Richard Matheson. And basically, you know, a, a stranger comes to the house of a couple who are needing money uh, for various reasons and says, if you push this button, two things will happen. You'll get a million dollars and someone you don't know will die. That is like kind of a, a classic 
moral dilemma. Um, you know, I need this money for these reasons. We, you know, reasons, reasons, reasons. And I don't know this person, so I won't be affected by this person dying. Do I press the button? And the Twilight Zone has the beautiful little, you know, you get, you see what happens. You know, you, they make their decision. Um, and there's a wonderful, amazing final line. And I'm not going to spoil it, but it, that's basically the end of the first act of the button. And then there are two more acts that then go into the moral choices and expand it. And, you know, it's, it's not a conventional way of looking at this. It's kind of like taking this very easy thing and being, and then like, okay, but what are the layers here? And then he spends another hour of movie unpacking the layers in this really interesting way. Um, Again, I maybe of the you know minority because it got an F cinema score. <laughs> a lot of people did not like being challenged or or trying to look into it. But I think it's kind of a wonderful, moving little movie. But I hope that anyone listening to this who likes movies that are not like any other movies and that challenge you and that don't totally work will give it a shot. And I would actually say – I don't know about this. I would actually say watch the can cut first. Which is actually more demanding and, and a little more weird, but I think it kind of, in its own weird, lumpy way, hangs together better. People are acting like this is the first time the can cut has been out there, but I think it was released because I've had a copy of it for a long time. I think it was released maybe in France beforehand or something like that. But yeah, I would say I would really hope that if Kelly doesn't revisit this, I hope that the fan editors will revisit this. And maybe do some of the things that we're talking about. Take that intro from the theatrical version, add it to the can version, maybe go into some of the comics and pull out some backstory as far as that goes. They probably won't have the time or money or energy to animate those things, but I could really see them making this a little bit of a, of a, of a fuller experience. And I hope that some fan editor out there is already working on that project. Now that there's this beautiful arrow DVD that's now available. And I do have to give major kudos to the arrow DVD and the extras that are on there. And I'm glad that arrow is investing now in extras so much. And the, um, I, I want to say, is it called? It's a mad world. The, or mad, 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 mad world. The documentary that's on uh, the arrow disc really well done and i think they did a really good job of because everybody's hands are tied i'm sure you know this more than anybody david everybody's hands are tied with covid so you have to now rely on online interviews and i thought that the way that they yeah you love it when your subjects are their own dps that's always a good sign that's like you know no set up the ring light what's that oh okay but he they did a really good job taking those interviews and putting them onto screens because there are so many screens inside of southland tales that they basically integrated the interviews with the world of southland tales so i thought that that was a really smart way to do it and i've seen such things before i mean i remember when that reconstructed cut of metropolis came together and they had production stills or they had you know a photo of a scene that wasn't in there and they kind of did that ken burns effect you know what i mean like in the civil war you know kind of move in shift on it so mm -hmm. but you're an editor by trade there you go there's your assignment what do you think 
I think that uh, I wish I had a week off. I could do this. In. I wish I. I wish I had any time whatsoever. Um, after that, with this, we're actually recording this on a Saturday morning, and after this, in about like twenty or thirty minutes, I have to go back and do more work. So it's uh, you know, I've yeah, it's, I've got I've got documentary series and a documentary feature that are both on my plate this year. So, so and, and COVID. So it's because it's January 30th and we're all like, when's the vaccine coming? Please, please, please. It's a fun time uh, to be in per- in the entertainment industry. Although, you know, it's a little easier being in post-production because like I'm in my little edit suite anyway. It's been a challenging uh, last, I don't know, uh, however many months, like, you know, 11 months. Just for the record, it is called It's a Madcap World the making of an unfinished film. So I just looked that up and yeah, highly recommended that you watch that and maybe even watch that before you watch the movie. Cause it's uh it really puts things into context. I really feel like this is a film that anybody interested in making movies should also see. It is in, in one sense, a cautionary tale because he came out of the gate with Donnie Darko. And that was, that was an interesting kind of way that that happened too, because it went to Sundance. It didn't get much of an, ex, uh, of a, of a reaction. It got, and it only became, and it, and it was released by, I guess, New Market right after September 11th. So it died on impact. I mean, nobody went to see it. I did, but I'm a freak, but it only like caught on when it was on DVD. Like Fox bought it for DVD and then suddenly it sold like crazy. And then all of the, the teenagers of the time, uh, we're like, have you seen this movie? Have you seen this movie? They would literally have Donnie Darko parties where they would all get together and watch Donnie Darko. That's an, an amazing trajectory. So when he got to do Southland Tales, one of the reasons he had all of those name actors, all of those crazy – that cast $20 million for this script that like if you read the script, it's like would you give $20 million? Like you wouldn't unless you saw Donnie Darko and you're like, this guy's a genius. Let's see what he can do. Now – it's a cautionary tale because he took it and he made a movie that is, I think you're right, neither fish nor fowl. It's not totally together because it's really a much, much bigger movie that's kind of telescoped into this small, like this runtime that, you know, that is under three hours with all of these characters and all of these plots. And I mean, having seen the movie as many times as I have, and I'd probably seen the, at least the theatrical or the can cut, like, I don't know, like 12 or 13 times over my life at this point. I still don't quite understand everything that's happening. Like I watched it again like, yesterday, the can cut. And I'm like, wait, who is she? And what, what is she doing? Like, you know, it's like Amy Poehler is the daughter of Christopher Lambert who won't take a personal check. It's like, wh- what, it, you know, but, but it's still like this movie that I feel like should be. And I think filmmakers do like appreciate it for the most part because it, it's just so ambitious I mean, the guy went out there and was just like, okay, I have my shot. I'm going to do this crazy thing, which may or may not work. And at the end of the day, it didn't completely work, but it's its own amazing thing. And I'm really gratified to see that it has something of a cult following. There are other people who reacted the same way that I did or, or similarly, uh, enough so that Arrow, God bless you, did do this beautiful Blu-ray set, um, which I looked at in his – this movie has never looked better. I don't think it can look better. It's just unbelievably gorgeous. And it's shot by, let's just say, Stephen Poster, who uh, shot Donnie Darko and went on to shoot the box. He was the head, I believe, of the ASC for a while. Um, he is a fabulous and amazing cinematographer. You've just never seen an anamorphic movie just be so gorgeous and anamorphic and 
and and really showing a like a tone and a time and a place right like the color palette just the way it's just so lovingly brought to visual life and that end scene on the on the zeppelin with rebecca del rio's performance and the dancers and that blinding light and all it's it's like a dream like so there there are parts of this movie that are like walking through or living through a dream and i don't feel like there's any higher compliment that you can pay to a movie that's trying to be ambitious. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. (laughs) Mary Dinkle's eyes were the color of muddy puddles. Her only friends were the Noblis from her favorite cartoon. She wished she had some friends. Mary had an idea. Dear Mr. Horowitz, I am eight years old. I have a rooster called Ethel. It would be great if you could write back and be my friend. Dear Mary, thank you for the letter. I have never met anyone from Australia. I share my home with a fish, a parakeet, an invisible friend called Mr. Ravioli. People often confuse me. I have trouble understanding them. Maybe this is why I don't have any friends. Dear Max, in your letter, you said you had no friends. Neither do I. Can you help me? Dear Mary, do you like chocolate hot dogs? Where do babies come from in America? Do they come from cola cans? Have you got a girlfriend, Max? Can you explain love? Be a creep! I find the world very confusing and chaotic. Dear Max, I don't think my parents like you. People often think I am tactless and rude. I cannot understand how being honest can be improper. You are my best friend, my only friend. P.S. Did you know that turtles can breathe through their anuses? Ooh. There, M- M- Mary. <laughs> oh. Do you have a favorite sounding word? <laughs> Mary and Max. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Adam Elliott's Mary and Max. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Rob and David. So, Rob, what's been keeping you busy, sir? Well, I've gone back to school, finishing that up. Um, it is kind of, uh, I would say, humbling and um, nice and sad sometimes to uh, sit down and basically do your complete uh, rundown of everything you've done over the past, I don't know, 20, 25 years. So I spent most of the winter writing this portfolio for credit for my university degree and um, was just digging through everything and just sort of going, wow, yeah, I was there from then to then. When was that? Wow. And just kind of going over all that. So finishing up that, I wrote a screenplay actually last weekend over a weekend. I'm pretty proud of. And I'm going to do a rewrite on that. And uh, just general creative work, just trying to keep my head 
on straight while we were all uh, locked inside, as David said. You know, it'd be nice to go out and see people. And, and Mike, you're not that far away. It'd be nice to go uh, have dinner with you, hopefully at some point before the year 2030. So um, maybe we'll get to do that. And David, how about yourself? Well, I'm optimistic that hopefully by the summer, we're going to start being able to have dinner with each other. Uh, although I'm in LA, I can't have dinner with you, Mike. I would at some point like to have dinner with you. That would be really lovely. Um, I have been busy since last July. Uh, it is now January 30th. It's since last July on a Shudder documentary, uh, which has now become a documentary series, a limited series on the history of queer horror. Um, I'm editing uh, and the executive producer is Brian Fuller. We'll see how it goes. It's still kind of morphing and, and stuff. I hope I can stay on it until, until the very end. Um, but it's, it's, you know, and COVID is, you know, speaking of COVID, COVID has kind of put a wrench in everything. You know, we have interviews that we need to shoot and, and it's been pushed back and back and back because of global pandemic. But we're hoping and, and expecting that the film, uh, excuse me, the documentary series, uh, is going to be out on shutter hopefully in October. Um, I hope. Uh, we hope it's not been scheduled yet, but it's like, you know, or, or just looking at the fall in general, I shouldn't say October. It's just like at some point at toward the end of the year, uh, this thing hopefully will be done. And I'm also working on my own documentary, which I've been working on for the last couple of years. And I brought this up uh, in other things. Um, it's called Heretics and it's a documentary about, um, Exorcist to the Heretic, the 1977 sequel to the Exorcist directed by and produced by John Borman, who, afterwards went on to do Excalibur, but before that was did Deliverance and Zardoz, which we talked about. And I've interviewed all of the living principles, really, or the, the principal people involved in Exorcist to the Heretic. And it's like this wonderful, amazing story of this movie that was the sequel to the highest grossing movie in Warner Brothers history, given the highest budget in Warner Brothers history. And it was this huge, huge movie that was a cataclysmic disaster when it was released. It was laughed off the screen. Borman went and recut it to try and, you know, kind of salvage it. But Basically, it's a movie about how in, in those days, Hollywood was interested in taking enormous risks and, you know, no one can take a bigger risk than any filmmaker did making a, a kind of a weird, like visually aggressively crazy spiritual thriller as a sequel to one of the most ghastly horror movies ever made. Like audiences weren't expecting it. They completely rejected it. But on its own, it's kind of an interesting, crazy movie. And, and it's kind of a story of how that movie happened and, you know, what happened to Hollywood between that and Heaven's Gate. Like, you know, they kind of clamped down on risk taking and creativity, you know, and bringing you back to Southland Tales, like Southland Tales takes similar crazy risks. It's just that Southland Tales wasn't the sequel to one of the biggest movies ever um, and didn't have the biggest budget in major studio history at the time or that that studio's history. So it's an amazing thing. I really hope to finish that documentary by the end of this year or early next. And, uh, cause I've been working on it for a while and, and, uh, you know, I've talked to Borman and, Lin, you know, Linda Blair and Louise Fletcher and all these people. And it's, it's just shaping up to be a great movie. And, and, you know, it's just about me finding the time to do everything that I need to do. And, you know, now apparently I have to do a renegade cut of Southland Tales. Which I would, which I would actually really love to do. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I might, I might have to leave it to somebody else out there, please. 
take the reins. I've got I've got a lot to do. Please take the reins. Oh, and, and the podcast. I'm sorry, I forgot about the podcast. I host and produce a podcast for Outfest, the Gay and Lesbian Film Festival out here in Los Angeles. And we are right now talking about doing season two. We did season one. It's called The Outcasts, presented by Outfest. And in the first season, I talked to people like Christine Vachon, John Cameron Mitchell, um, who the hell else do I talk to? I talk to a lot of people, uh, amazing people. Jeffrey Schwartz, the director, uh, HP Mendoza, the director, uh, Jamie Babbitt, f- just fantastic guests. I'm forgetting a bunch of them. I'm, I don't have a list in front of me. Uh, but we're talking about season two and that will happen this year as well. I hope it does. Uh, it would be really cool. A lot of stuff. I also cook. My OnlyFans is launching. <laughs> Nobody who's not gay will get that. But, um, wait, do straight people listen to do OnlyFans? Oh, is that yeah. a straight thing? Oh, too, yeah. Or is that it's just a gay everyone. thing? No, uh, oh, okay. So I, I never know. Okay. And yeah, just trying to, to get through LA, which has now become one of the world's biggest hotspots uh, of COVID-19. Uh, after doing so well, actually, initially, California actually did a really good job in the early stages of this pandemic uh, and now is not doing so well because of uh, – mostly because of – economic conditions and the fact that a lot of like essential workers are just like, you know, they are forced to work and they're getting it and and bring it back to their families. And it's a really horrible, tragic situation out here. So the, my, my plan for the next two or three months until uh, hopefully only two or three months until I'm uh, vaccinated uh, is to stay safe. And I hope everyone else out there does too. Please wear a mask. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to my OnlyFans, as well as to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.